Gia Grieve, good evening, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Our guests this evening, some of you might know, from the 1980s band The Communards, or from his appearance on Strictly Come Dancing in 2017, or from winning Celebrity Mastermind in 2014. Often described as Britain's most famous vicar, I am, of course, talking about the Reverend Richard Coles, who has recently retired from his Northamptonshire parish and embarked on the next steps in his life, publishing his first novel, Murder Before Evensong. Richard joins us this evening from East Sussex. Richard, you are very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Hi, Siobhan. Nice to talk to you. So we're listening there to you playing... um, a track called You Are My World, from a very different time in your life. What what does that track bring back for you? Well, uh, I mean, it, it's one of those things that sort of transports me back to the, the sort of early 80s. It was actually the first song that Jimmy Somerville and I ever wrote together. Um, so it was right at the, the, the launch of our um, surprising career in pop music, well, my surprising career in pop music. Um, and it's a song that, I mean, I listen to it now and it seems full of a brio and an energy and a sort of intoxication with being in love. That, um, well, it's nearly 40 years ago now and it's sort of rather moving to hear it, actually. Oh. Were you surprised at your success because of um, having been classically trained or just because nobody expects well, <laughs> to be a pop star? Well... I mean, nobody expects to be a pop star. I certainly should never have expected to be a pop star. My, my nephew, Oliver, who's now he's a teenager, um, when he was sort of 15, he first became aware that the adults in his life had backstory. And he said to me, were you in a band? And I said, yeah, I was. And he went, what, a real band? And I said, yeah, honestly. And he looked us up on YouTube and found a video. And at the end of it, he said, you know, it's really funny, but even then you could tell there was a vicar struggling to get out. <laughs> so, you know... <laughs> Richard, for you as a, a former vicar now in the Church of England, what has what has your experience been of the death of the head of your church? Well, um, it's moved me very deeply, actually. I kind of knew it would because um, one of the things that comes to the territory if you're a vicar in the Church of England is that, of course, we're an established church, so we're very much bound into the life of uh, the of the monarchy, actually, and constitutional questions. And that sounds a bit abstract, but I think that what happens with monarchies, especially when the monarch is the queen, who was so exemplary, is that it actually feels very personal too. And it's very surprising talking to people round about, many of whom, you know, are not enthusiastic about the monarchy, and some, you know, explicitly Republican. But I think lots of people have felt personally affected and personally moved by the death of the Queen. And, and of course, that's because she's actually been part of all our lives for so long. Her face looks at us from the banknotes and from the stamps, and she was always on the telly, and there was the Christmas broadcast. And she was a figure who was always there. And even though we may not have known her, to have lost her is is a real loss, I think. So the atmosphere here is one overwhelmingly of sadness I think not entirely there are lots of people you know who think this is the time to raise a protest about the way 
we govern ourselves or are governed. Um, and that's caused a little bit of tension at the edges. And I know it mm -hmm. goes down differently around the world. I mean, the history of the monarchy in Ireland, I'm very aware, um, uh, you know, is, is not without controversy. Of course it isn't. Um, but I think all over the world, this, this sense of um, a global figure of enduring stability having gone has affected lots of people. One of the believable, I know it's fictional, but one of the very believable little details in The Crown on Netflix has been seeing the British Queen kneeling at her bedside to say her prayers every evening, as well as going to service regularly, of course. And her, her faith was really very important to her, wasn't it? It was fundamental, yeah. Mm. I think that's a very telling image, that, as well, that someone as exalted and as grand uh, and as privileged, some would say, as the Queen should be, by nature and temperament, such a humble person. Mm. And I think she took the notion of um, being a servant of Jesus Christ and a servant of the church and a servant of the people you know, immensely seriously. Mm. And... I don't think she could have done what she did without it, really. And as she got older, I think particularly in her Christmas messages, her preaching of the elements of the Gospels was clear and brief and heartfelt and made an enormous impact on people. I think the Church of England, in fact, perhaps the Church generally, has lost one of its finest preachers with her death. It seems to me that in Britain it's actually sometimes quite difficult to be a person of faith because the... And, I, and by that, I don't necessarily just mean in an adherent to an institutional faith. I mean somebody who admits to spiritual experiences or oh, yeah. um, it has ecstasies or uh, rhapsodies of beauty, which, you know, they, they may not... Um, say, you know, comes from an, an external or transcendent force, yeah. but just to honour the spiritual in life, and I know that word is inadequate, but that, that sector can lead to ridicule and, um, oh, yeah. you know, a, a, at best, a, a lack of interest. I think it's uh, pretty, you know, it's an everyday experience now for people of faith to be derided for it. And one of the liveliest debates around the monarchy and this moment in Britain has been from people who I think scorn the faith of people or the, the kind of, of people who are you know, standing in a queue. As a friend of mine phoned me this morning, he and his kids and his wife queued for seven hours to file past the Queen lying in state in, in Westminster Hall. Um, uh, and I think it's very easy, isn't it, to kind of jest at a scar that never felt a wound, as Shakespeare puts it, decided that because you don't have a particular faith, the evidence of it in other people is ridiculous. But actually, these things, you know, are deeply, deeply, deeply wired into people. And even if we, you know, feel no need of, no need of that hypothesis ourselves, I think it behoves us to respect it in other people because we all have profound needs. We all wish to understand who we are in relation to other people. We'll wish to understand how we are in relation to time and place, why the values that inspire us are important. But one of the things I have noticed with regret is, and perhaps it just tells, tells me where I am now, is that there's a sort of callowness and a sort of self-regard and sometimes a heartlessness, I think, about, uh, you know, people who come from Kettering and have got on a bus and come down to London 
and are queuing with a thermos of oxtail soup for seven hours to pay their respects to someone they never knew. I think there's something deeply moving in that and something which speaks to really something fundamental in human identity. And I just think we need to respect it, perhaps, and think about it. That's not to say that we must exclude forever debate and argument about the monarchy. Of course, we mustn't do that. Um, but I, I think there is a necessary respect for people who mourn the Queen and everything that's kind of bundled into that. I believe you once said that you came out twice, once as gay and the second time as Christian. Yes, that's true. They're very weirdly parallel experiences, actually. <laughs> and it seems that there could be at least two ways of explaining what you've just described. One is a decrease in tolerance, which is very, very worrying. Another is that there is so much pent-up anger at mm. the church for it, the church in particular and other faith expressions too, for the ways in which they have really inhibited and oppressed um, people's lives. And I know that, you know, as a, as a gay man, you have had to face this yourself. How did you personally reconcile being part of, um, well, especially being a priest in an institution that consistently teaches gay people that their love is not real love? I don't know, actually. Um, and it's, um, it's, a, it's a shifting thing. I mean, I, I did it because I have never for a second doubted that God loves me and LGBT people and has no issue at all with people loving each other. On the contrary, that's the best of us. That's when we are at our most gracious, I think, so I've never had a problem with that personally. Reconciling that with the church, which maybe thinks differently around that, um, is very difficult. I mean, there are lots of people like me, of course, and once you find your way into a church community, faith is lived out day to day by lots of people who are entirely happy to do that alongside LGBT plus people in all their varieties and shades and stripes and everything. And that's, you know, just people get on with it. At an institutional level, it's much more difficult, but it was never going to be easy. You know, we inherit a long tradition which has almost everywhere and almost always been utterly inimical to the idea that two people of the same sex might love each other in a way which is exactly the same morally as two people of opposite sex. Um, I mean, sometimes I think we're moving in the right direction and sometimes I lose heart and think we're going backwards, actually. But the... I suppose the important thing at the centre of that is I have an unshakable faith in the goodness of God. You have had this extraordinary love in your life and um, I join many in saying how very sorry I am to have read about the death of your husband, David, and how moved I have been uh, to read the way in which you've, you've written about it. You, you wrote a book um, called The Madness of Grief, which was such an honest account of, of, of carrying on while, while also being consumed by loss. Did writing the book, um, what, what got you through? What got you through such a shocking loss? Oh, my gosh. Well, you have to. I mean, you either do or you don't. And if you decide that you are going to get through it and you're able to, what gets you through? Dogs was a big <laughs> help, actually. 
the constant companionship of two mm. sausage dogs um, who were ignorant of what was happening to me but were nonetheless always there and I had to take care of them. So that was one thing. The love of friends and family, you can't put too high a price on that, I think. Prayer connected me to a reality in which David's loss was not entire and that was important. And I think also just to choose life, you know, as the book of Deuteronomy says. I think, I think if you can, stand up, face forward and engage with people and do so as your authentic self, if you can. There's a lovely saying of St Irenaeus, who's one of my favourite crusty old church fathers, and he said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And I want to be fully alive. And that means, you know, experiencing grief and loss and the wreck that that makes of your hopes and your dreams um, and the challenges that it obliges you to face, sometimes overwhelming and seemingly insurmountable. But stick with it. Life is a gift there to be lived. And if you can, live it as fully as you can. Could you say a little more about how prayer stops David's loss from being entire? Is it, are these the prayers of the office? Are these uh, free prayers? Are these prayers you would have said together? Are they? What, what do you mean by that? I mean, I suppose when David died, I knew that he had gone. I knew that he was not going to walk in the room again, which is what I wanted him to do more than anything. But I also knew that he was gone into the mystery of God. And I know enough about the mystery of God from what we get of it here to have faith that everything that was good and lovely in David endures in the life of God. And that I hope I'm destined for that too. So it's not the end of his story and it's not the end of our story. And what connects me most vividly, I think, to that is prayer, because prayer opens me up to the reality of God. And that's where David endures and where I hope one day to endure with him. So I, it's kind of like tuning into a frequency, says one broadcaster to another. You know, most of the time you kind of spin the dial and it's hiss and static and occasionally you lock onto the signal and <laughs> that's what I try to do and prayer enables me to do that. Often private prayer, I was in a monastery for two years and I acquired some habits of prayer there which have stood me in excellent stead. And sometimes it's the prayers of the church and prayers of others. I remember when David was dying in hospital, I went down to the chapel and um, I remember I was sort of not saying but what was in my mind was um, I'm not going to be much good for a while so it's over to others you know to I know so, you know, as, a, as a parish priest my job is to pray for people it still is even I'm not a parish priest anymore it still is to pray for people and to take them with me into that awareness of the reality of God and of course they do that for me too Thinking of where you're at right now, um, I noticed that in, in some um, adverts, uh, they've dropped the rev in front of your name. So just to clarify, have you, have you left the church? It doesn't sound like it. Or have you just given up 
your um, appointment to a particular parish? Oh, yeah, no, I've just retired as vicar of Findon, but I'm still a priest and will always be a priest. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm just trying to... It's interesting, finding your feet once you retire from parish ministry. I didn't realise until I stopped just how much of my identity mm-hmm. and my daily life, of course, was bound up with that. And now I'm, I'm not that person, so I'm trying to sort of work out... I said to somebody, I feel a little bit like Paul O'Grady when he stopped being Lily Savage and hung up his wig and his shoes and started being the person he was before he got dressed up. And I think Mm. I'm doing perhaps a bit of that at the moment. Mm. I understand that recently you've turned your hand to writing novels and that you have a new book out called Murder Before Evensong. That's right. I've, um, I think like many a parish priest, I've long fantasised about murdering parishioners. Ha, ha, ha. So uh, it, no, it wasn't that at all, actually. But uh, no, I, um, I've, um, I've loved crime fiction all my life. And I think if you are a parish priest, you are inevitably a detective. That comes with the territory, really. And I wanted to write about that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in, in exploring lots of ways in which trying to live a life of faith here and now, although actually the book's set in the late 80s, but in our time, if you see what I mean, what that looks like and how it works. And at the same time, kind of use the... uh, There's a really powerful machinery, I think, in crime fiction, ways of looking at the world, a sort of character who's who's in the world but not of the world. The first um, proper book I ever got was given to me by my grandfather when I was seven was the Sherlock Holmes short stories... I've always been fascinated by that, that figure and I wanted to explore what that might be like and it is in some ways very close to the priest, I think. Mm. It reminded me in some ways, um, of, of although of course there are obvious differences, um, to the BBC's adaptation of Father Brown, G.K. Uh, Chesterton's character and... Although that's set in the fifties, but it's it's you know it's it's got a lot of very English ticks, and it's centred on the rhythms of church life, and the parishioners are um, troublesome <laughs> and uh, and very lovable. But the thing um, the thing that has grown on me <clears throat> about Father Brown is realizing that every single episode is about forgiveness. And I love, I have come to love the very many different ways in, in which the character of forgiveness is drawn. And I wonder, do you, I know you, you, you know, um, Canon Daniel Clement Clement. is going to come back for at least two more outings, solve two more, um, mysteries. Does he, does, does, does the good Canon have a theological theme, a, Christic message that he wants us to understand much more deeply than we currently do? Well, I hope if I write the character properly, if I do a decent job, well, then that'll just be there anyway. But someone, I was talking to someone there who did point out that, noticed in fact that the name was interesting, Daniel as the prophet mm-hmm. and Clement as mercy. Mm. And I think there is something about upholding a commitment to truth and goodness and sacrifice and light and life. And at the same time, 
forgiveness. I mean, I think you're right. I think you know, Christianity has much about it that is unique and distinctive. But I think especially in an era like ours, which is so quick to condemn and so slow to tolerate, I think the power to forgive is an extraordinary power. Mm. And transforming, I was just very struck, I mean, to talk about the Queen again, and when the, the King and Queen went to the North, I think the Archbishop of Armagh preached a sermon, a very powerful one, in Belfast, in which he spoke about the Queen as a reconciler and how necessary it is in reconciliation for forgiveness to be active. Mm. It's the hardest thing of all, I think, and... It's so hard won, it's so difficult, it involves such a sacrifice. But the fruits are so extraordinary. Mm. Yeah, liberating. It's it's liberating and life-transforming, and it just, all of a sudden, when it happens to people, you see them beginning to live in this world, the life of heaven. And, and, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I do what I do, even if I... Sometimes get frustrated and impatient and tired with it and with myself. I could never, never lose my love of that. One of, one of the, the lovely um, premises of your, your new book, Murder Before Even Song, is that it's not about grand swoops of history or reconciliation at a national level. It's about parishioners arguing on either side of a debate and debate is, to put it kindly, about whether a toilet should be put in the church. And it is in these small matters that exercising tolerance and mercy and forgiveness is wrought, isn't it? Yeah, because, you know, small matters connect to other things. And, I mean, the the, the idea for the book really began when I stood up in church one Sunday and very pleased to be able to announce something, said that we'd, um, we'd launched a project to install a new lavatory. And to my surprise, instead of everyone jumping up and clapping, there was a huge hoo-ha. And, of course, what I discovered was it wasn't about a lavatory. It's about what people bring with them to church, what attaches them to church, what they feel is theirs, what they fear may be taken mm. from them, and why that's important. And it's... Again, it's another reason why I get frustrated with people who look at people whose grief and mourning they don't understand and deride it. You need to understand why this is why this is important to people. And in the case of the story I tell in the book, you know, an argument about a lavatory, in fact, leads to murder and mayhem. And Daniel's job is to try to figure out what's going on and also to be an agent of fixing it too. Mm. I've just finished the second book, actually, and I've started the third, and, Mm. you know, those themes recur. One of the great features of your long-running radio show, Saturday Live, is the inheritance tracks. If I feel I'm in need of a cry, I make sure I tune in for that bit. What would your inheritance tracks be? What track have you inherited, and which one would you leave, and to whom? Well... I suppose the track that I've inherited would be Joni Mitchell. <laughs> Probably um, The Cactus Tree. Oh. I love that song. I love mm. Joni Mitchell. I think she is peerless. I think mm. she is the greatest of our generation. <laughs> and I adore her. And who gave you The Cactus Tree? How did you, how did you receive the gift of The Cactus Tree? 
Well, I left my public school and my choir when I was 16 um, and stepped into a very different world, a world of kind of hippies and counterculture and embraced um, a whole new life, really. And the soundtrack to that life was Joni Mitchell and there was just somebody who I particularly loved in that life, who loved Joni Mitchell and used to play that record and it just opened up possibilities for me, a different way of thinking, a different way of living. And 50 years later, I, well, 45 years later, I, um, I still love it. Mm -hmm. The one I would wish to hand on, and this would be with a certain element of mischief, would be Wagner's Ring Cycle. <laughs> Partly because it would oblige those to sit and listen to it for about 15, 16 hours. But partly also because it is one of the sublimest achievements of civilization and hugely problematic too, but endlessly rich and rewarding. And when, when you're ima imagining condemning some poor soul or souls to listen to Wagner for 15 hours, do you have anyone in particular in mind? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, well, everybody, actually, the entire population of the world would be obliged to listen to the whole thing without a break from beginning to end. I think that would be ideal. Uh, the Queen has modelled modesty in her church very well. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, well, you know, think big. <laughs> Richard, is there a track that you feel it would be good to play out this show with this evening? Well, I do love a toe-tapper, and I've been thinking a little bit about this moment in my life and our history. And um, I'm very conscious that the Queen died in Balmoral, and that reminds us that the story of her life is not just one about, you know, Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle and London, it's about other places too. And I think Scotland was the place she loved the most. And apparently she loved Scottish country dancing. I've never had the pleasure of uh, whizzing around a dance floor with her, but I'd love to have one of those great, great Scottish country dances and the dashing white sergeant does it for me. Reverend Richard Coles, thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you, Siobhan. Leap of Faith is presented by Siobhan Garrigan. The sound supervision was by Liam Mullen. The researcher was Kate Brennan-Harding. Broadcast coordinator was Michelle Gibson. And the producer is Sheila O'Callaghan.